Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um, as many of you know, have been with us throughout the semester. Uh, the Women in Public Policy Program closes gender gaps in economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And while the conversations take place in this room, are super important. They also happen within the context of a broader podcast community of over 16,000 um, listeners. So keep that in mind as you ask your questions, and um, uh, and we ask that questions be on topic, and that cell phones be turned off for our, our conversation to be respectful of our online community. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Elizabeth Singer Moore here today to talk about the history of the Mommy Track. I think this history will be. Um, very enlightening in light of current events. Um, Betsy is a WAP fellow. She's also associate director of the Open Jewish Circle, Open Circle Jewish Learning at Hebrew College. Um, she previously taught history and literature and women and gender studies here at Harvard University. Um, and she's a historian of women and gender in the modern United States. And we are looking forward to her forthcoming book, Best Interests, Feminism, Social, Science and the revaluing of working mothers in modern America. So, Betsy, thanks for being here with us today. We look forward to your talk. Thank you. I'd like to thank Nicole, Heather, and the entire WAP program. These were not the circumstances under which I hoped I would be speaking today. I am shaken to my core by this election, not just its result but the hatred, misogyny, racism, and breakdowns in decency and democratic norms that, that characterize the entire process. I know many, if not most of us in this room, are feeling the same way. Some of you have even more reason than I do to feel insecure, fearful, or unsafe. We must, must work together to ensure the safety and equality of women, of people of color, of Muslims and Jews, of sexual and gender minorities, of people with disabilities, of poor people, and people with costly health conditions. I asked Nicole yesterday if I should still proceed as planned with my talk, since behaving as if it's business as usual seems not only irresponsible, but impossible. After talking about it, she asked that I do, in the hopes that the history of feminist debates over the best approaches to achieving equality in the workplace which were premised on disagreements about women's nature, women's priorities, and women's needs, as well as about the most effective strategies for achieving shared goals, might be useful to us as we regroup. I offer this talk in that spirit. One of the most significant divisions among American feminist thinkers in the 1970s and 1980s was over the so-called sameness difference question. This debate was particularly sharp in disputes about women's relationship to paid employment. An Equal Opportunity Commission lawsuit against Sears Roebuck concluded in 1984 <coughs> brought such conflicting feminist theories to bear on the very material question of whether discrepancies between male and female employees were the result of systematic discrimination or women's voluntary cultural patterns. Both the plaintiff and the defendant called feminist historians as witnesses and their respective testimonies relied on competing visions of gender and work. 
The conclusion of this lawsuit in Sears' favor only fanned the flames of the controversy among feminists, many of whom were deeply distressed that any kind of feminist analysis had been used to undermine the professional and economic interests of the women who had accused Sears of sex discrimination. We cannot understand the article that sparked the heated debate about the quote-unquote <coughs> mommy track. Felice N. Schwartz's 1989 Harvard Business Review article entitled Management Women and the New Facts of Life, apart from this context. I argue that her essay, which was widely lambasted by other feminists, represented an attempt to resolve this issue as it pertained to the world of corporate management. It did so by applying those two categories, sameness and difference, to different groups of women. It, some women, Schwartz argued, were like management men, aggressive, driven, willing to sacrifice an involved family life to work long hours, travel, and relocate as necessary in order to get to the top. Other women, she posited, were different from management men. They wanted to work, but they also wanted to have children, to take time off to raise those children, and were willing to sacrifice professional advancement in order to have flexible or part-time schedules. In this talk, I will first very briefly describe the debates about equality and difference that pervaded feminist writing about women, work, and motherhood in the 1980s. I will then analyze the article itself, its goals, its intended audience, its arguments, and its assumptions, to illustrate how Schwartz tried to transcend the schism in feminist thought. I'll discuss the reaction to the piece, which highlighted her rather spectacular failure to do so. And finally, if I have time, I'll close with a brief look at an article by feminist legal theorist Joan Williams, published the same month as Management Women, that took a radically different approach to the shared goal of reconciling equality and difference with regard to women's work and mothering. The workplace has long been a site of contestation over the best strategies to, address, to advance women's rights and welfare. During the 1980s, one of the most prominent and for most feminists distressing examples of this clash was a competing testimony offered by historians Alice Kessler Harris and Rosalind Rosenberg in the case of Equal Employment Opportunity Commission versus Sears Roebuck. And this is not just a case of feminist inside baseball. The theories that they put forward have long-lasting and momentous repercussions for how we conceptualize and advocate for strategies that will advance women's equality. The Sears case, as it became known, was brought on behalf of women who were denied commission sales jobs due to managers' beliefs about women's preferences, personalities, and skills. Rosalind Rosenberg and Alice Kessler-Harris, who were two very prominent women's historians, were called as expert witnesses by Sears and the EEOC, respectively. Rosenberg testified that historically, there existed a, quote, consensus shared by women that for women, working outside the home is subordinate to family needs. She proceeded to draw a series of dichotomies between men and women, writing that women, for instance, quote, tend to be more relationship-centered, and men tend to be more work-centered, and suggesting that both society and individual women themselves expected that they would hold primary responsibility for child-rearing and other relational work. Kessler-Harris, on the other hand, responded by pointing out that women's historical labor market behavior was shaped at least as much by the opportunities, or lack thereof, available to them as by a different set of value orientations. 
However, Judge John A. Nordberg found Rosenberg's testimony, quote, more convincing than Kessler Harris's and ruled in Sears' favor. This case, which generated a flurry of articles and a public forum, demonstrated how debates over women's similarity to or difference from men had concrete economic consequences for women in the workplace. And it came at a charged moment in American feminism. Many women who, as college students a decade earlier, had chosen to pursue traditionally male professional work in law, medicine, business, or politics, had begun to have children or wished to do so. This forced them to confront both the cultural biases against mothers in the workplace and the lack of practical support in the form of maternity leave, affordable or high quality daycare, support for nursing mothers, and husbands who shared equally in homemaking and child rearing for those who were married. Against this backdrop, feminists contended over the treatment of birth and motherhood vis-a-vis -vis the workplace. <coughs> Should time off from work for childbirth be treated as any other temporary disability, closely <coughs> related to the physical ordeal of birth and its recovery? Or should maternity policies take into account the demands, emotional and physical, of new motherhood? <coughs> Some argue that the former represented a false equality. Birthing and breastfeeding a new baby is a fundamentally different experience than breaking a leg, and labeling pregnancy and childbirth as disabilities, they argued, devalued uh, these experiences. Others thought that treating pregnancy uh, and birth as different from other disabilities mm -hmm. would reinforce women's unequal role as caregivers and nurturers, marginalize fathers' significance, and would ultimately discourage employers from treating women equally. So these are kind of the stakes that are going on at this historical moment. Um, and there was another case, uh, California Federal Savings and Loan, the GERA, that challenged the 1978 amendment to California's Fair Employment and Housing Act that I can talk about in Q&A if you'd like. This was the context in which Felice Schwartz's controversial article was published. Um, some of you may remember, um, the title was Management Women and the New Facts of Life and it was published in the Harvard Business Review in 1989. Schwartz was the president of Catalyst. Some of you are probably familiar with Catalyst in this room. Uh, it was a nonprofit organ, it was and is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing professional women, particularly in the business world. Schwartz had founded the organization in 1972 with the intention of helping housewives enter the workforce. But it, the organization changed a lot from its early founding to what it was in the 80s. Um, by, by the mid-80s, Catalyst uh, regularly advised corporations on attracting, retaining, and advancing female managers and professionals. Schwartz saw her article as part of this project. She was speaking in this article directly to corporate executives. That was to the audience to whom she addressed her claims. Uh, she made several claims, starting from the premise that, quote, the cost of employing women in management is greater than the cost of employing men, but that corporations needed to employ them anyway. Schwartz laid out a plan that she considered a win-win solution for female managers and corporate profits. She criticized the assumption that all women shared the same goals and values. She encouraged corporations to identify management women as either, quote, career primary on the one hand, or career <coughs> and family on the other, uh, and to make this identification early in their careers. The career primary women, she argued, should be given the same opportunities as any promising male, male employee 
with the responsibilities to match. Sent on business trips, expected to work long hours and to relocate when necessary. Moreover, corporations needed to actively fight sexism in the workplace by implementing anti-discrimination and harassment training programs. This would allow corporations to attract and retain the most talented leadership regardless of sex. These women would, however, need to, quote, remain single or at least childless, or if they do have children, be satisfied to have others raise them. So that was a, the career primary woman. For the career and family women, she proposed what other feminists immediately and derisively labeled a mommy track. Corporations could retain talented women in whom they had invested training if they made it easier for women who wanted to both <coughs> devote time to raising children and participate in their chosen profession. <coughs> Schwartz suggested three requirements for keeping these mothers. Corporations should encourage women who took long maternity leaves to return to the company rather than punishing them for doing so by refusing to rehire them <coughs> from their old positions. They should provide flex time, part time, and job sharing options. And finally, they should insist employees with daycare. In exchange, these women would accept that they were halting, or at least pausing, their climb up the career ladder. This would benefit the women by allowing them to fulfill both career and family aspirations, and by reducing the costs they incurred by trying to do so. It would benefit corporations by retaining skilled employees that they would otherwise lose, and providing a core of talented middle managers who were grateful to be where they were. Employees shorts contrasted with those implicitly male middle managers who had simply stalled, mediocre in their skills and resentful <coughs> in their ability to rise higher than the company. In Management Women and the New Facts of Life, Schwartz set out to persuade corporate leaders to reduce discrimination and harassment and to provide the kind of practical support for employed professional mothers that feminists had been working toward for decades. In doing so, she drew on the language of both sameness and difference feminisms. Her strategy for addressing those contradictions, however, infuriated <coughs> feminists on both sides of the debate. The tension between the two strategies is evident from the very first page. Although Schwartz led with the bald assertion, quote, the cost of employing women in management is greater than the cost of employing men, she went on to explain that the greater cost was not a function of inescapable gender differences, but rather the result of the unwillingness of corporations to respond constructively to those differences. And although she insisted from the first page that, quote, women are different from men, with emphasis on the are, she also noted that, quote, certainly both men and women are capable of the full range of behavior. Indeed, the male and female roles have already begun to expand and converge. <clears throat> Schwartz's discussion of the career primary woman stressed her similarity to ambitious male managers, and her advice for executives was indistinguishable from the demands made by other feminists at the time. She sharply criticized the assumption that women's first priority was always the family. She stated the obvious, writing, the first step in the process is to recognize that women are not all alike. Like men, some women put their careers first. She noted that only 35% of executive women had children by age 40, and pointed out that the automatic association of all women with babies is clearly unjustified. Schwartz, actually, uh, 
Schwartz actually viewed this as a point of similarity with men, the fact that for some women the decision to prioritize career advancement required that, that they forego active child rearing. Uh, one of her critics later objected that we don't ask the same sacrifice of men. Uh, after all, Schwartz herself had noted uh, that 90% of executive men versus 35% of executive women had children. But her response was enlightening. Having their children raised by others, she replied, was exactly what men had to do. We have asked the sacrifice of men, she, she retorted. I don't know a CEO in the country who doesn't regret that he didn't know his children when they were small. He made that trade-off. I'm just saying that if women wants to, want to make it to the top, she's got to make the same trade-offs men have made. And if companies wanted to attract and retain these women who were, quote, among the best managerial talent you'll ever see, they needed to create the conditions for equality. In order to do this, she argued, corporations must change their management culture. They needed to consider young women as equally likely to show management potential as young men. The most promising of these women then needed to be given the same level of responsibilities and opportunities for growth, including the expectation of long hours, frequent business travel, relocation. The company must ensure that they be considered part of a management team, included in all meetings and memos, and generally taken seriously. This sounds obvious, but at the time, and of course, today as well, women are often excluded from many both formal and informal paths towards management development. Finally, executives needed to eliminate sexual harassment, discrimination, social exclusion, and condescension. In other words, if women were willing to follow a traditionally male path, businessmen must in turn give them equal opportunities, responsibilities, and respect. At the same time, Schwartz's claims about the career and family woman showed striking similarities to Rosenberg's testimony. Rosenberg testified that women, quote, have goals and values other than realizing maximum economic gain. Schwartz posited that, quote, women's continuing tendency to search for more than monetary reward makes them more likely than men to leave the corporation in search of other values. Both drew on this language of women's culture to argue that women's unequal place in the workforce was at least partly due to their own choices. Rosenberg continued, because housework and childcare continue to affect women's labor force participation even today, many women choose jobs that complement their family obligations over jobs that might increase their earning potential. Schwartz echoed these the career and family woman, she wrote, is willing to trade off the pressures and demands that go with promotion for the freedom to spend more time with her children. Indeed, according to Schwartz, due to the historical primacy of the husband as earner and wife as caregiver, women tend to bring to their employment a sense that they can choose to change jobs or career at will, take time off, reduce their hours. So. On the one hand, she has her career primary woman who should be treated the same as ambitious men uh, in exchange for giving up uh, caregiving responsibilities. On the other hand, she has her career and family woman who should be understood to have different priorities but still be useful <coughs> to the corporation, uh, but within very circumscribed uh, place within that corporation. Her portrayal of women as either ambitious non-caregivers or complacent nurturers 
combined with her assertion that management women were more costly to employ, created an uproar among feminists and management specialists. Harvard Business Review printed 22 pages of letters in response to her 14-page essay, most of which were very critical. The critiques came from corporate executives and human resource officers, feminist organizations such as the National Organization for Women and the ACLU Women's Rights Project. They came from individual feminists such as Betty Friedan and Sylvia Ann Hewlett, professors, deans, college presidents, and one government statistician. It would take more time than I have today to analyze the nuances of their letters. Simply put, the critics made two main arguments, that Schwartz's facts were incorrect or unsubstantiated, and that her article reinforced gender stereotypes in such a way that hindered women in their professional lives and men in their family lives. Um, I have some quotes from those letters, but in the interest of time and having a discussion, I'll, I'll move along for most of them. Schwartz's attempts to reconcile the contradictions between opposing feminist philosophies and strategies ultimately pleased almost no one, with the exception of the mostly male executives to whom she had directed the essay, many of whom were voluble in their praise. Those were, those were almost the only positive letters that the HBR published in response. The controversy operated on both the intellectual and the personal levels. Some feminists went beyond criticizing her ideas to attacking her personally. Um, a few, like Congresswoman Pat Schroeder, granted that Schwartz might have had the best of intentions, but others were not as generous. Uh, Betty Friedan, who, as some of you might know, was never one to hold back, not only called the article dangerous and deplorable in a letter to the editor, but told a newspaper reporter a year later that Schwartz, quote, is simply not a feminist, not committed to equality. She has an employer mentality. Columnist Gail Collins, writing in the magazine New York Woman, dryly invited readers to, quote, have some doubts about Schwartz's analysis, since the corporations whom she wants to influence are the same ones with whom she wants to consult and collect donations. Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English, writing in Ms. Magazine, suspected that Schwartz might be one of those, quote, unsisterly women who had struggled to the top without any help and expected other women to do likewise or step aside. Indeed, her comfort in the world of corporate elites was a significant source of suspicion among feminists. And I can actually talk more during the Q&A about Schwartz's history and background and that of Catalyst, her organization, if that's something people are interested in. Uh, because I think it's relevant to how she came to this approach. Schwartz expressed shock, hurt, anger, and bemusement at this reaction. Over and over, she reiterated that as the founder of Catalyst, she had been working to advance women in the business world for more than 25 years. Her organization had pushed for better maternity leave and flex time policies, just what many feminists had been agitating for. And she believed that many of her critics critics misunderstood, or worse, did not actually read carefully her article. And there was some basis for this consternation. Um, some of the letters did, in fact, misstate or ignore things that she had written. But the article was, in fact, dedicated to persuading corporations that it was in their own best interest to eliminate stereotypes 
fight discrimination and harassment and put into place family support programs. Um, this was, she, she wasn't wrong. These were the claims she was making. Um, she simply aimed to accomplish these three goals by persuading executives that it was to their competitive advantage to become more responsive to women's needs. What women want and need, she wrote, is precisely what it is in the best <coughs> interest of business to provide. Okay. So given that, as Schwartz repeated, she, quote, shared the goals of most feminists to help women climb the corporate ladder, to secure better social support for combining caregiving and working, to eliminate discrimination and harassment, why was her essay so widely condemned? The simplest reason was that her premise that women cost more to employ as managers than men was both a traditional justification for discrimination and entirely unsupported by evidence. By grounding her argument in a premise that most feminists saw as both unsupported and dangerous, Schwartz alienated any goodwill that, might, that she might otherwise have brought to the essay. But this was not the only reason. Schwartz had tried to reconcile the need for companies to treat both women and men equally, and to accommodate the, quote, difference that increasing numbers of women brought to the structure of corporate management. But she did so using the logic of big business, a large bureaucratic corporation, not of feminism. Her calls for flex time, childcare, and maternity leave were fundamentally rooted in her claim that these policies would prove profitable. Um, because, quote, for the first time, corporate America is looking at women not as superfluous, but as a business resource. Schwartz viewed this as an advantage. For the first 20 <coughs> years of Catalyst's 27 years, she told uh, a round table. I had a tambourine saying, be fair and good to women and support us. Now I say, do you know the new demographics? If you don't respond, you're gonna be out of the competitive fight for survival for business in this day and age. So I think it's a great opportunity. Schwartz took for granted that the only language that otherwise indifferent or hostile business executives would respond to was that of the bottom line. And she grabbed at the chance to focus their attention on demands for family-friendly policies and woman-friendly workplaces. But that strategy also carried significant risks, of which feminist veterans of the ideological, political, and legal battles of the 1980s over sameness, difference, and mothers in the workplace were all too aware. Where Schwartz saw a reasonable trade-off between corporate concessions to caregiving and a halt, or at least pause, in a woman's climb up the ladder, other feminists saw a rationale for inequality and a penalty for not conforming to the traditional male model. As Christensen rightly pointed out, there has always been a secondary track for mothers seeking to balance work and family, consisting primarily of part-time, temporary, <coughs> or contracted employment. And Schwartz was proposing to institutionalize this. The fact that she wanted to do so at a higher level than in the past, and with corporations making some concessions to support motherhood, did not change that fundamental fact. Moreover, the profit motive provided a tenuous basis for demands for childcare, family leave, and flexible schedules. Although Schwartz argued that businesses could not afford to neglect their female employees' needs, that logic can cut both ways. In the face of layoffs, profit squeeze, or recession, women who needed jobs would lose any leverage they once had, 
and corporations would have to have a ready justification for axing such benefits or simply favoring men. The tensions between sameness, difference, and business raise difficult questions about the ultimate compatibility of feminism and market-based policymaking. The same month that Management Women and the New Facts of Life came out, legal theorist Joan Williams published an article uh, addressing exactly these questions in the context of the Sears case. Where Schwartz mapped sameness and difference onto groups of women, Williams rejected those categories entirely. She argued that traditional sameness feminists did not sufficiently deal with the way women's historical differences operate to their disadvantage in an ostensibly gender-blind capitalist system that is, in fact, based on traditionally male life patterns. So Williams says, these arguments don't work when you have a model of the corporation that, is, that assumes a traditionally male life pattern. It, it simply doesn't work. Difference ideology, on the other hand, represented, quote, a gender critique of possessive individualism that functions to marginalize the women who espouse it. In other words, it is well and good to value women's caregiving labor and their experiences doing it. However, by doing so, we continue to economically marginalize women who follow this path. Uh, and it accepts the notion that anyone who rejects the values of contemporary capitalism, who rejects the values of contemporary capitalism, freely chooses to eschew the spoils of, of capitalist endeavor. Where Schwartz sought to raise the status and economic power of women on the career and family track, Williams called for the existing structure of work and family life to be entirely rethought. The notion that women, quote, choose to become marginalized workers, she wrote, clouds the fact that all workers are currently limited to two unacceptable choices, the traditional male life pattern or women's traditional <coughs> economic vulnerability. <coughs> Wage labor does not have to be structured this way. Changing it should be a central thrust of a feminist program. Schwartz was optimistic that women's lives could be improved by negotiating with employers on employers' terms. Williams viewed it as a feminist imperative to change those terms completely. The Sears case for Williams was proof positive that difference feminism with its celebration of women's relationship-oriented values and marginal position in the labor market, left women vulnerable to economic exploitation by employers. As demonstrated by the reaction to Schwartz's proposals, many other feminists thought similarly. What Schwartz viewed as a mutually beneficial arrangement between a corporation and its female management staff seemed to them to promise an institutionalization of the same logic that underpinned the Sears case. That women who expected to play a nurturing family role must pay a professional and financial price. And what Schwartz saw as corporate adaptation and flexibility, other feminists perceived as retrenchment of the traditional male advancement model. The decade of struggle within feminism over the significance of women's reproductive roles for the workplace was one of the primary sources of conflict over Schwartz's article. But as Williams' article demonstrates, the debate was also shaped by divergent visions of the relationship of feminism to big business. 
In Schwartz's view, shifting demographics and economic conditions promised a productive partnership between the two. For Williams, Friedan, and many other feminists, however, the incompatibility between the existing corporate structures and ideology and the imperatives of feminism made any such promise a false one. Thank you. I hope that we can talk more uh, in the next 45 minutes. I tried to keep it short given the events uh, of this week about how different ways of approaching the shared goals of equality can be reconciled, how we can think about the demands of uh, the larger systems that we live in and how to reconcile those with our ideals. Thank you very much. to support families mm -hmm. and and that you know this discussion kind of misses that question of, of, of greater mm. responsibility beyond individuals who happen to be working Absolutely. and and so you know the, the tensions between corporations and families when you say you know prioritize that I think is is the dichotomy that that kind of underpins the whole concept I'm so glad you raised that question. That I could not agree with you more. And I think that's where it's important to think about the historical moment that this debate was taking place in. This debate was taking place in the mid-1980s, after a decade and a half of intense feminist activism. Ronald Reagan had been elected. The possibilities for enacting that vision of society seemed more remote than they ever had for women who had been active in the feminist movement from the 19, during the 1960s and 70s. And so one of the things they were really wrestling with was in the context of an administration and a general political mood in the country that feels deeply hostile to this vision of shared responsibility for social welfare writ large, not just about family, but um, poverty and racial equality and um, you know pretty much everything you can think of, how do we advance our agenda? And that's one of the reasons, and I'm so glad you gave me the chance to articulate this because I, I would have liked to articulate it more in the talk itself. That's one of the reasons that I hoped this talk could be relevant right now because I think one of the most pressing questions that we face is how do we advance an agenda for equality in the face of a hostile political climate? Um, our new president might disagree, or, sorry, president-elect might disagree with your last sentence. Um, and I think if he were here, I mean, I hate him. I don't want to represent him, but uh, I'm sure he would point out that he employs many female executives, uh, and uh, that would be interesting to explore. But my, but my only question is a simple one since uh, I wish you had said uh, more about, uh, well, I guess you just did start on it, uh, the extent to which this uh, decades-old controversy still is alive. Uh, so my very simple question is, uh, 
I was fascinated to learn that the term mummy track originally was denounced, was, was deliberately pejorative. It was. It um, absolutely was. Is it, is there any of that left? Uh, is it still pejorative today or is it safe for me to use it in a non-pejorative way, the only way I've ever used it, uh, without getting lynched by angry feminists? Oh, okay. Uh, so I'll start with your first point. I, I think that, um, I actually think that based on his own words, Trump would absolutely agree with the premise that there is an incompatibility between uh, a productive, uh, I think, uh, I think he would uh, agree that there is an incompatibility between uh, corporate goals and priorities and incentivizing uh, a, you know, a, a social structure, a, a regulatory structure, a, a corporate structure that supported women's uh, and men's child rearing or other caregiving, it's not only child rearing, but other caregiving uh, <coughs> obligations um, without penalizing them by keeping them lower in the hierarchy. Uh, he's stated that he finds uh, maternity leave an inconvenience uh, to businessmen. So I think that that's pretty clear. Um, uh, I, in light of the ongoing violence against um, women against people of color. I, I'm very uncomfortable with the language of lynching when describing a critical response, so I just want to put that out there. Um, that said, uh, I think that indeed, in general, the mommy track is usually used pejoratively to refer to the marginalization of women within companies. Um, how a given person uses it and responds to it is idiosyncratic, but in general, I think that is usually how it's used. Yes. I, I was interested in uh, not only the failure <laughs> to see uh, men as having a role in parenting, mm -hmm. but in any understanding of uh, the, the woman's developmental trajectory. Women live longer. Yes. I think, you know, many of us, certainly of my generation, uh, who made a choice to both work and have kids, yes. discovered that very early on an assessment was made of us that was going to stop us from getting anywhere. Yes. And no one was saying, well, I mean, look, right now her kids are, you know, an infant and a three-year-old, but a time will come when her kids are in school and so forth where her responsibilities may be slightly different. And furthermore, that we will learn things from her because her experience in the world is different from that of some of our other people that will be valuable to us. Um, uh, so thank you so much for raising that because it speaks so much to Schwartz's own background and the history of Catalyst. So Schwartz has had a very interesting life. Um, she founded Catalyst in 1962 uh, after um, a youth spent um, starting her own civil rights organization, then going to work as the mother of a young child in her family's company, um, negotiating with labor unions in uh, ways that had um, been, that her father who owned, who had previously <coughs> owned the company had found himself unable to do because he was so hostile to the union, but she 
found it useful to work with them. Then taking time out to um, have, I believe, two more children, if I'm remembering correctly, um, spend some time being a full-time caregiver, and then realize uh, her trajectory was actually very similar to those of you who've read The Feminine Mystique and know Betty Friedan's history. Her trajectory was very, very similar to Betty Friedan's. Um, and so by the mid-50s, she started to look around for ways that she could uh, move back into the workforce and found it frustrating. And so when she founded Catalyst in 1962, her express purpose was to provide a resource for women who had taken, uh, who had been full-time caregivers, whose children were now in school, and who wanted to contribute professionally. That was the, that was the original purpose of Catalyst, and it changed by, by the 70s um, from a resource for um, individual women to a kind of more consulting type organization to directed at companies. Uh, but that was the background, and in her article, she does briefly allude to this possibility that some women might want to step off and then step back on. Um, but it didn't get very much attention, and it didn't get very much play. She really did focus in that on the two types of women. But uh, I think her background speaks exactly to what you're talking about. Um, I really appreciate your talk. I'm a current master's public policy student, and my mother actually lived through everything that you're talking about. She's exactly 30 years older than me. She's a lawyer at um, a mutual fund, or was for a very long time, and is now considering other opportunities now that my sister and I are both in higher education and in our careers. And I just wanted to thank you for giving me a lot of perspective that I haven't had yet, uh, given that I've read Lean In and it meant a lot to me and I want to talk about it with my mom, but don't quite have the language to do it. And she's actually told me, like, I live that, I don't feel the need to read it. Mm. And so I just wanted to ask you, like, what advice would you have to professional women of my age and also of my parents age to engage on these like very long-standing historical issues. Wow. So I'm a historian. I'm <laughs> not always <laughs> the best in giving uh, individual advice. I mean, I think that um, finding companies that themselves have a proven track record of promoting supporting uh, and you know generally um, endorsing not only women but uh, caregivers uh, is probably one of the best things that you can do um, there are there are companies out there that um, have good records of providing family leave to both men and women um, look, look at management, see, don't, don't just look at the policies, but look at who's in the organization. Are there women who have succeeded, uh, and men who have succeeded despite being caregivers for their families, um, whether that's children, elders, um, disabled siblings, whatever the, the caregiving is. So that's kind of on the individual basis, and I think that what I, what I would most profoundly love to see is increasing pressure on states. I think state level work to increase uh, family leave is probably the best hope we have right now. Um, California's model seems to be working pretty well as far as I understand. I'm sure there are sociologists and economists who can speak more um, in a more detailed way uh, to that 
but um, I think state level work towards promoting these goals for everybody, as well as individual efforts to insist that uh, caregiving is not incompatible with doing good work. Um, but I think that the advice comes down to everybody's specific situation, and it's hard for me to be general. I need to get caught up on just what the direction of this discussion is supposed to go in. Mm -hmm. um, are we brainstorming here uh, ways in which uh, women can become a more comfortable and um, natural members of any workforce we want to? Is that where we're going with this? So if I can just address that question. Please, thank you. This is part of our weekly seminar series. So what we do is we invite prestigious scholars from across sectors to come and discuss their research from different perspectives. So what Betsy brings is a historical lens on the employment opportunities of women within the workforce in the United States. So that's the purpose of the discussion to talk about the research that she's conducted for her book. All right, and so, so we're just to so the not really to solve or to, to think about solving. It's to think critically about think the critically issue. Think critically about the issues. And no that problem. will mean different things to other, to, to different members of the audience. Mm -hmm. But I think we have another question right here as well. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much for this, this is really interesting. Um, so, I'm really, so I, I've, done, I've done some research here at the Kennedy School and before that uh, around, <coughs> around the, the way women behave in workplaces and the backlash that comes with that in various forms, whether that's in terms of being liked or warmth, competency, pay, all that kind of thing. And what, I, what I'm struck by is that when there was this sameness difference debate, turns out that neither of them are actually appreciated in the workplace right. at this point. Right. Right. So whether you're the same and willing to make those trade-offs, you're still hated and thought of as cold and bitchy. And whether, if you're different, then you're not gonna get the job in the first place. So, um, so what I struggle with a lot is that the research that we have seen here and that we've done with, um, with Professor Hannah Riley Bolt, who I used to work with, um, is that you have to, to, in order to make the same amount of money or get the same out of that negotiation and actually not be hated is by playing into a very sexist feminine stereotype mm -hmm. while of like, I care about the organization, the only reason I'm negotiating is because of this external factor, not because I actually think I'm worth it. Mm -hmm. um, and I struggle with the idea of how can get that relative individual short-term gain, but also in a way set back the entire ideal mm. that you're struggling for. Um, it seems like this is a, that the context you've given shows that it's a, it's the same conversation around different parameters. But I guess what I'm wondering is how do you how in the past whether it was in these different parameters in the in the time that you were researching. How did people navigate on an individual level how to balance that? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there are as many strategies as there were women in workplaces. Um, many of them, uh, I, 
you know, I think that it changed a lot with the movement of women who, when they were in their early 20s and the teens and early 20s and the 60s and early 70s and had been active in the feminist movement and really rejected the idea that they had to be specific kinds of feminine in order to be in the world. Um, and so many of them really did. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, it's so, uh, it's so um, poignant, but like the, the, the pantsuit, right? Um, which has become such a symbol in the last uh, year, it's why that became both uh, common and a pejorative term, because it represented women who were trying too hard to be like their male counterparts. Um, you had, I mean, one strategy that I think is really interesting, the Harvard Union of Clerical and Technical Workers, which undertook a very long, very long campaign to get union recognition. Uh, it lasted many years. They, what their approach was, is they tried to use uh, kind of more traditional feminine ways of organizing. They didn't want to use the kind of traditional male unionist mode of organizing. They focused on relationship building. And they described that, that that's their, I'm using their language when I say uh, feminine. Um, they saw that as more comfortable for the women who were their main targets uh, of unionization, but one-on-one -on -one relationship building. Um, and so that's an example of women using kind of more traditionally feminine mores and um, gender roles, but not to influence an employer, but to influence each other and gain strength through union. So I think there's just uh, a very big range of how people approached it. Um, and I think that, as you say, many of them found that success was at best mixed. Thank you so much. Um, so I hope you'll forgive a political scientist for asking a question oh, about contemporary please. politics. And, <laughs> I and don't see how of, we can avoid it. <laughs> and thinking of um, the world in terms of winners and losers as an occupational hazard. Mm -hmm. um, so your, your presentation um, sort of ended right, with, with Williams. And so Williams comes in with this critique um, that Schwartz's um, attempt to reconcile sameness and difference, you know, retrenches the male productive model. And what I'm really interested in is aside from kind of prescriptive uh, recommendations of what companies can do or individual analyses of how women behave, I mean, what, what are the consequences of this debate, right? You sort of ended with, mm. with William's critique, but if you were to roughly categorize um, where we are today in terms of what the dominant thinking in industry is, I mean, sort of who won, right? Did Schwartz win? Schwartz won. You know, Schwartz right? won. Like, no question. Sort of why? Yeah. And, yeah. and how does that then sort of yeah. into, we talked today about, you know, Sandberg and corporate feminism. Yeah. And so I'd love if you could maybe yeah. trace some of what you brought out through to just how we can think about, um, about this debate today, right? I think Schwartz won. Um, in the last three weeks, I saw a piece in the Wall Street Journal and heard two pieces on NPR about how uh, providing better family leave or uh, support for childcare was actually good for business. And I think this logic, the logic of um, economic interests of the corporation rather than a logic of justice, fairness, or equality has absolutely won. And I think that 
whether that's good or bad um, will depend in, I mean, I think there's obviously some downsides to it ideologically for me personally, whether it's effective or not remains to be seen and whether it's effective in a sustainable way against the changing tides of the economy also remains to be seen. I mean, I, I was stunned. I was driving and, and I had NPR on and they had someone from the American Enterprise Institute defending California's family leave policy, which you know, even 10 years ago would have been stunning, um, saying that it, you know, it turns out it's actually not as bad for business as we thought. Um, and so on the one hand, I think that can be in a time when there isn't broad support for principled uh, stances on um, caregiver support and women's equality, um, economic arguments can be effective. The question is whether they're sustainable, and that I don't know. The gender conflict, the male versus female uh, thing that's been going on for centuries or since the beginning of time, is never going to completely be eradicated. And women prove themselves through all of the things that we are as women, balanced, compromising, ability to be competent in the face of, of what seems to be insurmountable problems, still solving them whether we're doing them at home or whether we're doing them in the workplace. But um, as a person, a person who is now 76 and held a lot of jobs, including 35 years of teaching, and before that, I held lots of jobs. And there wasn't one that in which I didn't have the gender thing to deal with. And there's so many dynamics connected with this that it's impossible to get through all of them in one short discussion. But, uh, you know, we're not all going to go into an industry where you're in danger or working with biotechnology where you wouldn't, this isn't a place where you would bring your children to keep them there while you're working. There are always going to be industries where you may choose to work, but you're going to have to make other arrangements for children. There are always going to be gentler, kindler industries where, and there have been. Right. I'm here to tell you, Certainly. for 40 years or more, uh, industry, including the aeronautics industry in northern Illinois, made nose cones for rockets that went to outer space, and they had a children's <coughs> program at work for women who worked there. So I think it varies as you go around the country, but I also worked in a bank where there Ma was sorry, run by women. Question. Yeah. The, the important part is we want to make sure that the dialogue can be mm -hmm. open to everybody. Sure. So I look forward to a if you have a question for our speaker. Yes. It, the, 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 question that goes along with what other people have been asking is uh, uh, what are some more broad connotations of this conclusion, the conclusions that they've come to as far as the research is concerned? Um, uh, can you as far as more results that they have seen from research? Uh, uh, what's going on today that was oh, different from 
I mean, years ago. <laughs> that's a that's a bigger question than I think I can answer right now, especially as a historian rather than as a political scientist mm -hmm. or, or economist or sociologist. But um, <laughs> broadly, impressionistically, we have more women's workforce participation. There are absolutely both industries and specific employers who are better and worse for uh, women in them. Uh, we've seen increasing numbers of young men tr uh, express an interest in you know, what's often assumed to be a women's concern, which is quote unquote work family balance. Um, and we've seen that industries uh, that are feminized, that in which more women work than men, are consistently devalued uh, economically and in their status. Mm -hmm. And that it's not, and that as more women enter a profession, its value and its pay declines. And as more men enter a profession, its value and its pay increases. So sexism is deeply entrenched um, in the economy. It can't really be thought of as separate. So I mean, there's many, many things that one could say, but those are just a few observations. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how choice feminism and sort of the increasing acceptance of women opting out of the workforce um, has affected this conversation as well. Um, I know I think Cheryl Sandberg got a lot of backlash because many women said, you know, I want to stay home with my children, mm -hmm. this is my choice, but it, I, I've always felt that uh, it's probably more radical but that there's an onus on highly educated women, even if they opt to have children, to stay engaged in the workforce. And I know there was a New York Times article and I think 2004 and 2008, comparing women who had many degrees decided to opt out, and right. all of them regretted it right. in some right. aspect or another. So I just wonder, yeah. So I'm uncomfortable with the framing that the New York Times articles used. I think that, uh, and and I hear I follow Joan Williams, who's written about this in much more recent scholarship than the one I was talking about here, but um, who's written a, a lot about. This, um, this discourse, this discourse of choice feminism and, and the opt-out narrative. Um, in part because we find that um, many of the women who are portrayed as, quote, opting out have in fact been pushed out by a combination of um, inflexibility in workplace, lack of uh, affordable or high enough quality um, uh, childcare options, um, unequal partnerships in the home, and that the language of opting out is one that people use under ex these extremely constrained choices. They're making a choice, but it's a choice that that often they wouldn't make if they if it was more possible for them to stay in without it being exceedingly difficult to do so. The other is that it ignores the vast majority of the people who are. Uh, stay-at-home mothers who are not highly, most of whom are not highly educated, who are not in the top brackets. Um, women without college educations are most likely to be the ones who stay home when their children are young, be simply because of the cost of childcare. Um, and so that conversation, I feel like, kind of misses the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. um, thank you. I'm sorry, a little late. Oh, but, uh, no problem. <laughs> Blame the child. <laughs> <laughs> I have a one-year-old. <laughs> I understand. Uh, so my question is, you know, I think this experience of having to go through maternity leave right now is very fresh for me, and even going through um, pregnancy and working. I work, I work at a, in a traditional bank, um, and my husband 
like, oh, she's probably going to be more distracted. So right. I was just wondering, do you think now that kind of traditional caregiving roles are <coughs> shifting, at least in my, you know, my family from when I was in my parents' where my mom was kind of most of the you know caregiving was on her versus my dad, and from my husband and me, we try and share it a little bit more equitably, I think. Yeah. Um, do you think now that those roles are kind of shifting, employers are also <coughs> going to be that when women have their first child, that it's a it's a stall, especially in terms of salary going up, whereas there's still this sense that now a man has a family, and therefore, you know, he has to be helped along because now he has more people to support, rather than any sense that it's all money in the, in the same pocket, you know, all money for the same family. And I, and I don't think there's any evidence that has changed since we yeah, and uh, do, do you want to comment on this too? I was just going to say, I think one of the really interesting trends, I haven't looked at this data in a few years, but it's actually from uh, Williams' Center at, at Hastings at Berkeley, is that most um, most work family reconciliation lawsuits are filed by men, and the ones that win are by men. And I don't think that's actually evidence necessarily that men's caretaking roles are, are increasing. It could be, but I think, the, I think it's actually evidence of men can have a bonus, right, when they're asserting their need for work-family reconciliation in ways that women can't, right? And so I think it's fascinating that judges sort of disproportionately reward men for, fi for filing work-family reconciliation lawsuits, but women don't seem to get the same reward. I don't think it tells us anything about what's going on in the home, but I does think it tells us about the way these dimensions over who uses work-family reconciliation policies are still gendered, right? I think that, oh, I just wanted to say, in, in, uh, there was a recent article, and I, I bet you saw it, where they looked at um, women academics in economics. Yes. Is that what you were going to talk about? No, no, please oh, continue. Now, um, but yeah, I, yes, I saw it. When, the, when the male um, faculty person uh, took advantage of the opportunity for equal leave that was being put out to supposedly help women get a you know balance of care from the dad what actually happened is the man took the time and used that time to write more papers and so forth so while having a child delayed women's success it actually gave the man extra time and that this was sort of seen as a as paradoxical um, yeah I mean I think that one of the things that uh, and, and this is informed by my own experience in the last year and change, um, having my, my first child, is that one of the things that I think feminists have recently been very hesitant to talk about for very understandable reasons is, and this gets back to the sameness difference question 30 years ago, um, which is that the uh, consequences in the first few months of having a baby are, if it is a, a, you know, 
a baby that you give birth to rather than adopt um, are very different for the person doing the birthing. I won't even say the man versus the woman because of course there are plenty of same-sex couples, but you know, for the person who gives birth uh, and if that person is also going to breastfeed, um, the consequences to your body, to your time, to your brain, you know, at least in those first couple of months are different. Um, I think it's it's hard to argue with that and that there's a different uh, kind of exhaustion penalty for women, at least in those first few months. But, the, but we don't have to have policies that compound that by assuming that that remains true for a long time or that, or worse, that because uh, women uh, in, a, you know, women who, who give birth in a reasonable country would have a few months to um, recover and um, establish their uh, the kind of phys physical aspect of motherhood, whatever that may be. Um, that that what often happens is then because the woman has the leave in the first place, she ends up taking on more of the family and home labor, and then that carries on um, even once the kind of physical recovery and the different relationship to feeding the baby, if that exists, um, happens. And so I think thinking about that is really important. The other thing I was going to say is that one difference uh, in a different study I read that I don't remember the citation for, my apologies, is that men who do take paternity leave when it's offered are often um, disproportionately seen as less masculine, less of a team player, um, it undermines their authority in the workplace, and it's taken less seriously. Um, so, I mean, I can say that when my husband was, he, he was, we were fortunate that he had four weeks of paid leave that he could take, which is, I mean, nobody has that. We're extremely lucky. Um, but he had um, people that he works with who were angry at him for not being able to respond to them uh, during those, you know, the first two weeks after our baby was born, even with like the, the away, mess, away message saying, you know, I'm gone for paternity leave. So, yes. Just a hopeful remark on this. So, so there's actually a lot of evidence now in Scandinavia and Germany how paternity leave has evolved. And yes. so now it's um, so the shares have actually gone up a lot. So mm. Germany now is in a place where yeah. you can this option, and now it's about 20 or 30 percent of fathers actually take it. Yes. They're more highly educated than the average man. And I know a friend of mine who was an electrician when he wanted to take it in 2007, they just looked and was like, seriously, your wife? So this has changed a lot. And now, there's an interesting paper on Norway which shows strong cure effects. So if the boss yes. actually takes paternity leave, the men are more likely to take it. And it's even seen as a social stigma if men mm -hmm. do not take it. So I think social policy in a sense we just have to wait for several years until mm -hmm. it becomes mm -hmm. yeah. effect and it can change social norms. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the question is like how in a society that is quite far from being one that uh, looks at at work and caregiving the way Germany and Scandinavia do, like how do we move forward. Yes. I just wanted to say on that note of the effect that that might have on um, on the share of caretaking and the home, to, to your point, is that there's um, an ongoing experiment in Canada right now. So Canada has 52 weeks of, of parental leave that you can split however you want among the, the parents, but uh, men generally don't take almost any of it. Uh, so in Quebec, what they've done is they've added five weeks of paternity-only leave, and then so this was a WAP seminar that was given last year. Yes, I was at it. It was great. Yeah, and yeah. so like, and they're still doing the experiments, but what it, preliminary results seem to be showing is that there's, they're act like years after they've already taken this paternity leave, there's an 
in, there's a more equal sharing of the home responsibilities mm -hmm. in terms of child rearing and even cleaning the house and things yeah. like that. Yeah. That might be interesting social policy. So um, I want to go back to, to um, what Schwartz said about it being more expensive to hire women. Mm -hmm. Because since that time, and you know, recently, say with the Sony Lakes and Gina Davis's work, it's, it's become clear that there are two different norms for pay, right? Mm -hmm. And as women, you know, we might wish it costs more to hire us. But, but, <laughs> but in fact, um, the reality is that, you know, when the pay levels go up, that, you know, or, or even in industries, right, where you're hiring the most, you just have a very different view of what it costs. So the whole kind of economic piece of that, mm. and you know, why is it okay to pay the men so much if that's an expense, right? right? You right. know, I mean, it's right. like it's like that's yeah. a, that is a that is a extra restrooms. Well, I mean, I think that 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 is, it really reveals how even kind of seemingly neutral conversations about things like costs and the economics and profit and things like that that that. Are, that people often frame as if they're gender neutral on their face, like, well, it's a simple, you know, hard-headed matter of who costs more to employ. It often, it is gendered exactly because of the expectations about what it means, what costs mean. And so employers who made that argument weren't taking into account that they paid men more. Um, they were only thinking of, you know, turnover costs if a woman left for maternity leave and didn't return, or the cost of paying for um, childcare, or, at sick days. I mean, this isn't as true for management, but certainly like arguments about sick days for employees, which was recently in Massachusetts and is happening in a lot of states. Um, you know, the, the argument is about like that that costs extra and that like women cost extra because they have to take more time to do these caregiving things. Um, and it ignored differential costs in men often costing more for um, healthcare and sick days that they took uh, for their own health. Um, men were more likely to, uh, this, I don't know, I don't have the numbers now, this was about the 80s, so um, I don't know that it applies now, but men were more likely to need time off for heart attacks um, than women were. And like, and just employers didn't factor all of that in when they were talking about who costs more. And I think that your point is, is uh, an irony that that hasn't, there's not this kind of like, economically self-interested rational employer who says like oh it costs it costs less to pay women so we should hire more women and promote more women because we won't have to pay as much in executive compensation like they're just not looking at it that way and so gender informs even these seemingly that, neutral that was once an argument i mean in yeah. the same way mm -hmm. you know that yeah. you off outsource offshore right. industries mm -hmm. and you hire you've been hiring immigrants so this again is a sort of um you know the conflict corporate view of how the world should be, you know, the people at the top should be taking all the gains, which is exactly what we built. I know. You know, that's <laughs> our inequality dilemma. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, I I would love to hear a solution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. Really, it's not really a question, but I would like to hear your thoughts on this, but it's just something that keeps keeping me up at night for the past two weeks, because I'm not from Always hires mothers. And the reason he does. 
love it is because it's the best way for him to advance. Because he told me that mothers always do all the work. They have no time. So they only work. They don't have time for politics. And he can ad advance using their work. He doesn't have to work, and they do the work for him. So, I mean, when everyone's talking about costs here, yeah. So it, 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 what he was saying is it actually costs him less, and right. that's why he only targeted, targets mothers when he has to hire. Right. Now, so as I said, for me, this was like, I couldn't sleep at night. But the question is, yeah. if this is like where we're going, like when we're trying to promote mothers as someone who it doesn't cost as much, but it's worthwhile. Right. So it turns into this kind of thing where, I mean, he actually said it in a much worse way. But right, right, he right. said it was like he built his career taking advantage of mothers. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Name and company. <laughs> <laughs> Are you looking for work? <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So I mean, I I think that yeah, that I guess that does become a logical extension of this kind of instrumentalist way of looking at the question of employing and promoting caregivers. Um, and the, I think the same study that you referenced about economists in academia um, found that, in fact, mothers are more productive if, if, and again, this kind of feeds into a certain ideology about like productivity um, and what that means, but uh, that's a question for another time. But in terms of production of articles and like uh, uh, that mothers, once their children were, I think, you know, two or three, like were more productive than anyone else. Um, there was a there was a drop in their productivity when you know between when their children were born and in their in their youngest years, um, but that then it it increased, um, and and so like this is being used as an argument to see see you shouldn't discriminate against mothers because so much of the research and writing on this is aimed at chipping away at this belief that 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 lots and lots and lots and lots of studies have shown that there is a bias against mothers um, that single women or, or uh, women without children are um, often, uh, you know, they, they certainly experience sexual harassment and they experience all sorts of other kinds of disadvantages in the workplace, but they aren't regarded as less productive or less committed than men, whereas mothers are. And so there's a lot of research kind of pushing back against those assumptions, but it does ultimately rely on ideas about, um, uh, you know, what's, what's, the best interest of the employer. Like we just seem to not be able to escape that. Um, so I'm kind of interested in where these these ideas come from. So I, I just have to thank you so much because you gave us a historical lens on kind of how we stand in this space and constantly talk about the business case for gender equality. And while Wath often says there's also a human rights and equality case to be made, like how did we get to this point uh, of making this case and so given our history, and then bringing it to where we stand now, and I know this is not your, your field, but from a feminist lens that you, that you brought to the room today, is what does that mean for the future of this path? Mm -hmm. and, and do you think that the business case is still the right argument, or that we need to combine it with a, a feminist argument given kind of our, our current political space. And, and I know that's a really complicated, but, but as we think about how we can move forward. Right, 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 right. Uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. I think we need to move forward on all fronts. I think that, I mean, in some ways that's not a very satisfying mm -hmm. answer, but I think that um, 
we have, I do think that we have to combine, we can't relinquish an argument that is based in um, justice and equality. I just think that the danger of doing that is too great. Um, and that protecting the equality gains that are realized during periods of economic strength and protecting those gains in periods of economic weakness are really, really important. And if you only root those arguments in the, uh, you know, in claims that it's you know better financially to for companies to pay these costs, then like the second it seems to not be better for them, then you lose all of that. Um, so I, I don't think that that argument on its, I think that argument untethered from any kind of moral claim or, or justice claim is, per personally, I think it's insufficient. Um, I don't have the research to, uh, that's, that's outside my field, but, um, but I also think that this has, in the moment that we live in, in this like, for lack of a better term, neoliberal moment of the last 30 odd years, I do think that claims about economics, claims about productivity, claims about profits are often in the short term the most effective ones. So I, I think it would be a mistake to kind of, you know, you know throw them out of our toolbox. Um, so yeah, I just think we have to keep pressing on all fronts. Betsy, thanks for, for bringing us on that journey. Um, we're back in this room next week. Lara Gee, who's also a WAP fellow, um, may add an economical, economics perspective on our current conversation. And that's part of, I think, part of the um, what happens in this room is that we bring different perspectives from different disciplines to shed light on current policy problems. And I really appreciate your historical perspective. And Laura's going to talk with us about the more you know, information effects on job application rates in a large field experiment. So, thank you so much, thank and thanks to all of you. I appreciate it. Yes, yeah, um, Just for the room, um, there's a. Uh, conversation next Tuesday, the 15th at 5.30 p.m. at the Democracy Center that I and uh, another NPP1 are organizing about um, uh, the kind of con feminist conceptions of masculinity from a male perspective and trying to understand how, what the role of men is in feminism right now and how we can engage with that. So uh, it's not officially affiliated with Harvard in any way, but if you would like to participate, Please come out. Democracy Center is right next to Daedalus um, at 5:30 next Tuesday. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.